You're listening to Latin Experts, a podcast of Latino studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Latin Experts features the voices of faculty, staff, and students, as well as friends and alumni of the Department of Mexican American and Latina Latino Studies, the Latino Research Institute, and the Center for Mexican American Studies. Join us for this episode of Latin Experts. Thank you for listening to Latin Experts. And today we're going to ask the question, how do we tell our family stories? Telling our stories in our own voices and on our own terms has been long a concern for Latinx artists, writers, and other creatives. In media, artistic, and publishing environments saturated by whiteness and white viewpoints, it can be challenging for Latinx creators to make their own space. This is why books like Yasmin Ramirez's new memoir, Andale Prieta, A Love Letter to My Family, published by Lee and Lowe Books, are so important. Andale Prieta is an honest and often gut-wrenching story of Ramirez's family in the borderlands between El Paso and Juarez. The book centers the lives and stories of the women in her family and depicts their relationships with each other, with the men who come in and out of their lives, and with the politics of race, class, and gender. The book has already received wide acclaim. Kirkus Reviews called the book a promising debut, gripping in its honesty. And Marina Felix Kim wrote for Latinexes in Publishing, I highly recommend this memoir if you're looking for an incredible life story that is written beautifully. And so I'm excited that our guest today is Yasmin Ramirez, 2021 Martha's Institute of Creative Writing Author Fellow, as well as a 2020 recipient of the Woody and Gail Hunt Aspen Institute Fellowship Award. Her fiction and creative nonfiction works have appeared in Cream City Review and Wisache, among others. She is an associate professor of English, creative writing, and Chicanx literature at El Paso Community College. Yasmin, welcome to Latin Experts. Hi, Karma. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to get to chat with you. I'm so pumped as well. And let me just start by saying your book is fantastic, and I hope everybody gets out and reads it right away. Thank you. Thank you so much. So what prompted you to publish a memoir? The memoir started as a way of mourning the loss of my grandmother. And so initially, if you asked me when I first first started it, and it was in its bits and chunks of just me trying to capture my memories with her, I wouldn't have thought I was writing a memoir at all. I just thought I was going to my home base, which is always when I don't know what to do and when I'm feeling really emotionally overwhelmed, I write. And I just started writing. And then the more I wrote, the more and more I wanted to write. And then I just ended up here. And so as I was going, I guess midpoint when I definitely had the bones of a manuscript, then I thought, no, I want to do this and I want to learn a little bit more about my family. I want to follow my genealogy and learn more about my grandmother after the fact, which is sadly what a lot of us do. And I ended up with, like in this very crooked up and down hilly road and that's how I ended up here. Hmm. The first half of your book in particular is dedicated to the women in your life, from your great-grandmother to your grandmother, your mother, your sister. And our life stories can be told in so many ways. So why did you choose this way? 
Wow, that's a good question. I think because it's what I know best, like I'm naturally just a storyteller. If I try to ever just say like, oh, I'm going to tell you something really quick, it takes me like 10 minutes. So when I was going through it, as I said, it was a way for me to mourn her. So part of me wanted to linger in some of these memories, especially early on in the first part of the book, because they were some of my most cherished memories. And then as an adult, I saw them a little bit differently through a different lens. And as I was going through, I just thought, okay, I, w- I really want to tell these different stories because they all contributed to who I am and where I am in my life. And it was really important for me to honor. Initially, it was just honoring my Ita, my grandmother. And then it was also, as I started pulling those threads, I thought, well, wait, I also have to honor my mom and my mm. sister and all of these people whose, whether big or small actions, were very important to me and very important to my path. And so then it just took on a bigger life than I initially intended. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. It's always interesting to hear about people's processes. And you mentioned Yorita, and that's who the book is dedicated to as well. Tell us about her. I don't know if we have enough time. I don't know. She was one thing when I was writing the book is I, of course, I highlighted things that I felt were really important. She was by no means a perfect woman. None of us are. But I always found it so admirable, I, even as a child, just how much care she took of me and how cariñosa she was with me. And even when we were in the most random places, as the book shows, I grew up in bars a lot of the time. Because she worked in the service industry, and once you're there, I think it's hard to leave it because that's your group of friends. And we would go to bars, and we would do all these things, but I never felt unsafe. And I think considering the very hard life that she lived and that she was able to hang on to that softness, I think was really beautiful. And I don't know. I wouldn't be who I am without her, for sure. Mm -hmm. There's this beautiful moment you write about when you're quite little and you're with her late at one of the bars and you're falling asleep. And so they clean off the wooden bar top and wrap you up and you just fall asleep there on the bar top. Was that something that happened frequently? It didn't happen too, too frequently. I want to say maybe just a handful of times. Enough that there was a pillow for me, but not so much that it was frequent that we were just always, always there. Because even sometimes when we were there, she was there doing her side hustle of doing grifas to make some extra money. So it was interesting. Sometimes we would go for fun. Like that day we went for fun. And then other times we would go and she would tell me like, tengo que trabajar. And it was like, okay, so we're going to go sit at the bar. <laughs> and and so... Yeah, I don't know. That is one of my favorite memories, which sounds really odd, but I just felt so cared for. And it's interesting because it's weird, right? This odd dichotomy of being a child in a bar, one, and then being with a bunch of adults that are drinking. But I was almost like the star of the show because anything I wanted, they would give it to me. And I would get all the snacks and like play music and I would get to dance. And then when I got tired, I went to sleep. (laughs) So what else could a child of that age ask for? (laughs) Right. I just think it's beautiful, that whole dynamic, because... It, it really gets the character of class and culture, I think, so poignantly. And it's you don't read it with judgment because it is so obviously a caring, loving space. And I think many working class kids can relate to being in similar situations. Is that what you were trying to capture there as well? You know, what's interesting is when I was writing, I didn't really think of anything 
other than trying to honor the story and thinking of, I want to portray this as accurately as possible. And then after the fact, that's when I felt like, oh yeah, this is a little bit odd. And I was, I did feel very vulnerable in those moments because I knew obviously there might be judgment from people like, oh, there's a child in a bar. She's sleeping on a bar. She's at a bar after hour. There's so many things where we could, or I could be subject to criticism and but it wasn't until after I finished the story that I thought of those things. Mm. Because for me, I saw it as one of my favorite memories, but for someone else, they might see it a different way. And so I don't ever try to write with a theme in mind. I think for me, it's like follow the story and the story is going to take me to where it wants to go. Mm. Mm. Which is some interesting advice for, for students who might be listening and thinking about how to even get the writing process going. So I appreciate that. So let's talk about your title and particularly Ita's nickname for you, Prieta. This is, of mm-hmm. course, common in Mexican-American families. My dad was El Prieto and his family growing up. What's the significance of being Prieta to you? It's definitely complicated in that for most of my life growing up, I was Prieta. And that was, I, not that I thought that was my name, of course, but <laughs> I just knew that that's who I am. I'm Greta, and that's it. And it was great. And we would play and we would do all these things. And it wasn't until later that I learned the negative part of being Prieta. So the white gaze and then just colorism within the community was difficult to swallow. So it's like I had this beautiful flower and then someone just crushed it mm. because I was like, wait, wait a minute. There's so many things. There's so many Prietos and Prietas who've actually messaged me and said, oh, this was negative in my family, though. But seeing your title makes me think of it differently. Mm-hmm. And so I was blessed that for me, it was a positive. Like, I was never told to stay out of the sun. I, I would play all the time. And my grandma seemed to celebrate m- my skin color, which now, as an adult, I appreciate so much. And there's a complication in that. It was very pretty, and then it was shadowed. But now I've circled back to I own it and I love it and I miss that I'm not called that anymore by her. And I'm so glad that she gave me this foundation to where I can appreciate myself. Because there's moments, of course, that I was not comfortable in my skin at all. And But I had that foundation to go back to of, okay, no way, this is okay. I'm okay. I'm a Prieta and that's who I am and I'm going to get more Prieta in the sun and that's great. And then I start thinking about lots of people go to tanning beds to look like me. Why Why is this so complicated? And so, yeah, I think the best way to say it is like a capirotada of good and bad. But I've chosen to hang on to the good because that's where it started. It seemed to me, too, like you and what you've just said now, it's in the same way some of these words that once were negative or could be negative but feel positive to us get reclaimed. And that can be empowering. And do you see it as empowering? I do, because it's sort of me taking ownership of it, and then people can't take it away from me. They can try, but now I have chosen not to allow them to take something from me that is not there, and to comment on my skin or to comment on my appearance, because it's just not acceptable. And I don't know, the other thing is when I see the cover, and this is going to sound really naive, that wasn't the original title of the book. It was Mm. a different title. But when I was in the editorial process, they noticed that three different times that my grandma says it to me in the book in different contexts. And it seemed so beautiful to honor not just myself and my nickname, but also how she spoke to me. So we're both represented in the title. Hmm. And 
again, this sounds so hilarious, where I didn't think of like, oh, the implications of what fiesta is going to mean to everybody else. Mm -hmm. Because I get so focused on, I want to honor my family. I want to honor myself. I want to honor my Nita. And then after the fact, as I mentioned, getting those messages was really beautiful because they've all been positive, thankfully. And seeing that there was other people who felt like me, who felt uncomfortable in their skin at different times, and telling me they feel seen in the cover and just the title is really amazing. And a couple of their messages has brought me to tears because not only did I feel this empathy for them, but also less lonely because in that space you feel very lonely where you're not comfortable in yourself and you think you're the only one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not surprised that so many people have reached out. I just think it's such a common experience in our community. And I think it's the kind of thing that in recent years, at least like within a Latino studies context, maybe you see this with your work too, the really coming to terms with uh, questions around color, questions around race that we haven't necessarily done as a community until then. I don't know if that resonates. It does, absolutely. Yeah. So I wanted to transition a little bit to the sections about working at Nordstrom's in Dallas. You've got this juxtaposition between the long working hours and the long happy hours and the estrangement, I think, is one way I might put it from your family in El Paso. And I was reading this and I thought, oh, gosh, what a interesting indictment of capitalism. And I was going to ask you if you intended that, but I know for sure that you did not because you said you follow the story. I'll ask the question a different way, which is to say, will you talk about what that period in your life gave to you? Oh, that's a complicated answer. They gave me a lot of good things, but also a lot of really negative things that they're apparent in the book where I still carry some, like if I see a Nordstrom, I feel like I have a little bit like PTSD, to be mm -hmm. honest. And working in those spaces, I learned a lot about people. I learned a lot about class and wealth and how they're not synonymous at all. I learned a lot of humility. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I learned my work ethic came from those experiences as well of like just going and going and keep trying and you keep going. And so that that's something beneficial. The times that I cherished the most there, of course, were when I was helping the breast cancer survivors. Mm -hmm. I think that those were like the little nuggets that kept me there even when I was still all in into the company. But it was definitely weird being so far away from home, right? Because Texas is huge, <laughs> but so close at the same time and that I couldn't come home because I couldn't get time off. And I think just the fact that I lost my language was really a big symbol of where I was. Yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That's a really poignant moment in the book. When you have that realization, you can't think of the last time that you spoke Spanish. And that also, because you couldn't get time off work, I believe you said in the book that there was almost two years that you went without being back to El Paso, being with your family. What was that like? Moments, it felt like no time had passed at all. Because you get little pockets of days off here and there. And usually I would be so tired or honestly hungover that... I, I was just resting at home, and I didn't have several days to to come back to El Paso. So it was a little surreal in that you're just living your life, and then something really tragic happens, like the loss of my grandmother, and that wakes you up like nothing else. Mm. Because you're just kind of like, whoa, wait a minute. I was just living my life, going to work, thinking about how I have to work six days in a row, and now I'm 
on a flight back home, it was very surreal and very odd. And I had a lot of guilt from that. So it's complicated. And, and I learned, I think even in that writing process, I learned to forgive myself mm. for that time period. Wow. Yeah, I just thought it was powerful to mention because I think so many young people uh, have that same struggle. You're trying to build your career and live your life, but you don't want to let the sort of family relationships go south. But it's very hard, these tensions. And I think people in our community maybe feel it more profoundly than than others. I'm not sure if that part is true, but I I know people in our community do feel that tension. And you captured it really well. Thank you. I think you're right. I'll say because you think there's no such thing as five-minute phone calls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right to put that on a lighter note like oh this is a caller really quick and that just never didn't work and yeah. so I think it's learning to embrace those five minute phone calls even if they don't go as long as you'd like them to go or as long as they want them to go incorporating those somehow yeah yeah so you write at the end of the book that you come from a long line of people who pursued a better life people at the intersection of the mexican and american spanish and english tacos al pastor and texas sized steaks and what do you hope people take away from reading your family story one i hope there's the part where i'm trying to honor everyone for sure honor the women my grandmother their hard work and to some extent, my hard work, because I, I put everything together. I hope that they'll connect with our story. And I also hope one thing I struggled with as I was writing this is I would second guess myself a little bit, because when I would look at the landscape of Latinx literature, I didn't see my story there. I self-identify as a pocha because I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spanish is good some days and bad other days, and I'll just forget stuff, and I intermingle. And I didn't see a lot of that. And when I got to that last chapter where I'm going through my genealogy, it came from this question I got the entire time I lived in Dallas of like, where are you from? No, but where are you really from? Mm -hmm. Where are your parents from? Where's your grandmother from? Mm -hmm. And it, now I feel like even as I, even as I'm saying those, I'm getting like a little twitch in my eye because it was just so incredibly frustrating because I don't have an immigration story and I don't have a first gen experience and I don't even have the experience of going to visit family in Mexico. I have no connection to Mexico other than I, my family decided to settle on the border. Mm-hmm. And I hope that people will see that there's a broad spectrum in our Latinidad, that we're not all, we didn't all just arrive. A lot of us have been here for a really long time. And I feel like when you look at media, it appears like we like snapped fingers and suddenly all of these immigrants are here. And mm-hmm. that's not the case. And I find that incredibly frustrating. In my youth, I found that frustrating. And now I hope that changes a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the book totally captures that experience and is empowering probably for people who share something similar we're about out of time here, but I did want to ask you if someone is listening today and they're maybe a young Latinx person and they maybe have been told they're good at writing or they want to be a writer, but feeling self-conscious, not sure what to do. What advice would you give someone who wants to write their own story? I think the best advice is to tune out the outside voices and even maybe self-doubt, even though that has a tendency to rear its ugly head, and to just write it because I feel like so often we undervalue our stories because we don't see them represented as often Mm -hmm. and our stories are extremely valuable and the one thing I've learned so far with this first book is 
I've gotten so many responses and these moments where I felt so alone that I think of like younger Yasmin and little Yasmin. And I want to go back and tell her like, look, you weren't alone. All of these people feel this way. Mm. And so if we give strength to our voices and we have faith in ourselves, then you can write it and just keep going. It's all about being stubborn and doing it and tuning things out. Mm. I love that. It's all about being stubborn. That is amazing advice. And I think it's going to be the place we're going to end our conversation. Again, our guest today is the writer Yasmin Ramirez talking about her book, Andale Prieta. Yasmin, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Karma. I enjoyed our conversation. Me too. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Karma Chavez, and this is Latin Experts. Hi, y'all. This is Ashley Nava Monteros, the Communications Associate at Latino Studies. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Make sure to check out the Latino Studies Instagram page. Follow us at Latino Studies UT to keep the conversation going.